Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Jenny Lindsay who is one of Scotland's best known spoken word performers. As an independent programmer and promoter of poetry, live literature and spoken word, Jenny has been credited with contributing to a thriving live poetry scene in Scotland and she has performed across the UK and further afield at a variety of festivals and events. Jenny is the author of two full collections and two pamphlet collections of poetry she was long-listed for the inaugural Gerwood Compton Poetry Fellowship back in 2017, and last year won a John Byrne Award for Critical Thinking. Her most recent work, The Script, which exists as both print collection and stage show, has been described in The Scotsman as genius, and in The Wee Review as one of this year's, that was 2020's, most necessary spoken word shows. Jenny is currently working on her first full-length play, A Reimagining of Julia from George Orwell's 1984, and her third poetry collection, All of This is Ordinary. Jenny, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Now, one of the things, obviously, when I've been speaking to people, you know, the last year has had a profound impact on everyone in terms of the pandemic and lockdown, etc. But particularly for someone, you know, I mentioned you're one of our, you know, Scotland's best known spoken word performers. That, obviously, because there's nowhere for you to perform now, that must have had a big impact on you professionally? I think like a lot of spoken word poets or performance poets or whatever you want to call us, you know, it's not exactly the world's most lucrative art form, but the lack of obviously live performing opportunities has taken its toll because I miss it. And it's the reason I do all of the other work, even if it is the least well-paid part, the, the actual getting up on a stage and, and sharing, um, you know, a full-length show is the best part of what I enjoy about this crazy thing that I'm doing for a living. I'm also not brilliant with technology or with sort of putting things out online. For me, the liveness has always been the most important thing. So I I didn't actually do very many of this sort of online cabaret type stuff or it wasn't really, it's not really my bag, to be honest. So it's been odd. Because I wonder as well, you know, you and I were talking just before we started recording this about, you know, for example, the impact it's had on the music industry, musicians in mm. terms of live gigs. And I wonder as well, part of the, the appeal of doing the spoken word performances is that interaction with the audience or feeding off that energy that you get in a room and how they react to what you're saying and what you're doing in, in the course yeah. of your performance. Yeah, absolutely. And as, a, as somebody who writes fairly, you know, political spoken word poetry part of how I always approach anything that I write as a stage show is it is a conversation with a live audience and and one of the best parts of doing this script and the last few times that I I did it was the conversations afterwards in the bar you know (laughs) because you know you get to discuss um with folk who come to see you what they think about this that and the other and yeah, I really miss it. I've got to say, I really, really, really miss it. And I can't wait to get back on the stage again because, um, I mean, I'm probably going to be completely shit because I'm <laughs> so out of practice. But yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, in terms of your writing, do you, any, any poetry that you write, is it with a view to performing it? Or is that a different skill? Because obviously, you know, sometimes you're just committing the words to paper, but then 
there must be part of you just thinking, well, how am I going to perform this? Or is it two different kind of skill it's sets two, almost? I think it's it's different for different performance boats. With me, I always know that the end result will be it being performed on a stage. So so I do sort of write with that in mind. But I mean, there, there are some poems in my most recent collection that I probably wouldn't ever perform on a stage, partly because it would be too difficult. And also just because they don't quite fit a sort of performance style. I mean, there's a few moments in this script where there's some more ambiguous and sort of more literary poems that you might need to read in order to understand what I'm getting at. But pure performance poems, for example, the opening and closing poems from my show, which is The Schism Ring and a poem called The Imagined We, which is the one that won the award for critical thinking. They don't read as well in the book, but they are they are. Humbly, they're very good performs, but they don't they don't come across quite as quite as strongly in the in the book, and that's fine. It's sort of two different things. So, and I should say to anybody who's listening, I'm sure if they just Google the imagined we, there's a brilliant performance where you. I'm not sure if it's one of your friends. It's she's playing the piano and you're performing, yes. and it's a brilliant. Yes. I think it's well worth if anybody wants to just Google that and check that out. I think I'm sure they they will find it absolutely captivating. That would be lovely, yes. Um, that is uh, a woman called Jo Shaw, who was in the band A New International. Biff Smith from A New International composed the music for the Imagined We, and his music is also throughout my show as well. So that was oh, such a fun collaboration, that. And, and the film was made by Kevin McLean and Perry Johnson from Loud Poets. Um, so we all kind of collaborated together, creating that. They have me in my kimono in a news agent in Leith. It's worth googling, guys. You know, it'll give you a laugh if nothing else. <laughs> Absolutely, I would, I would thoroughly, I would thoroughly recommend that. Now, in terms of the the podcast, obviously, <laughs> I'm going to take you on your literary journey of of your life and just get you to choose some of your favourite books or not so favourite books. And mm-hmm. I always take people back to childhood. And the first question is your favourite book from childhood. And the book that you've chosen is one called Rumours of Peace by Ella Leftland, And what was it about that book that, that has come to the forefront? Do you know, it's so, it's a really odd one, right? I'm going, I know the people in the podcast won't see this, but I'm going to show you the copy of it. It's this like really, really old book and it's falling apart because I've read it so many times. And I think, I, I think it is actually for adults, but I read it when I was pretty young and I've reread it at different ages and it's kind of, I've taken different things from it. And it's, it's basically about a young girl coming of age during the Second World War. She lives in a small city in America. And what really gripped me about it is she's quite an unlikable character. And I think maybe it was one of the first unlikable characters I'd read, who I also felt loads of empathy with as well. And she's she's coming of age. She's quite antisocial and she struggles with like friendship. And she's also super clever as well, but she's really obsessed with the war. And she goes through a stage of like total racism against the Japanese as well. And it's about her coming to terms with humanity, I guess. It it sort of takes you right through the entire war as she grows from the age of 10 to the age of 15. And um, it's so jam-packed full of really difficult questions to grapple with. And um, I I recently reread it after you asked me to come on this. And I got even, I got different things out of it as an adult than I did the last time I read it as well. It's such a beautiful novel, and I've not met anyone who's who's read it, but actually at the time it came out, it was described as, you know, ranking beside Harper Lee's classic novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, and all this kind of thing. And I honestly would highly recommend it to anyone. I absolutely love it. I don't even know if it's still in print, but uh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> Do you know, it's funny you should say, because 
you know, when you'd sent me through the list of books and it wasn't a book I was familiar with at yeah. all. But it's, I've obviously never read it. I, I mean, I like the idea that you read it at different stages of your life because obviously, depending on what age you are and your circumstances, it will have different effect on you and you take different things out of it. But what age were you when you first read it? I think I was nine. Um, I've always, I, I was a pretty antisocial kid myself. All I did was read. I was so shy and like I struggled I was heavily bullied at school partly for that reason I think because I was just a really obvious target and so reading was I mean I read voraciously when I was a kid I used to keep lists and I must have nicked this off like my mum or my dad's bookshelf or something because I don't think it was a gift or anything like that. I mean how you know obviously from you know being that shy child where did the obviously what you do now would be, you know, at first glance, the opposite of that, because it takes a certain level of nerve and bottle and, and courage to stand up in front of a, a room full of strangers and perform stuff that is really personal to you. Yeah, completely. Um, so puberty, that helped. Um, and it was a combination of two things. One was my mum did a lot of amateur dramatics when I was growing up and I loved it. And I, I've got a brilliant relationship with my mum. I've always admired her. She's so brave and, and just brilliant and independent. So I really admired her, but I lacked the confidence to do it myself. So she chucked me in youth theatre when I was 13. And that was, that was absolutely the best thing possible. And then when I was 14, I think something just snapped in me. I was in music class and I was getting bullied by these two little shits. And I was had my, my headphones in and I was at the electric keyboard and I used to write songs as well. That's kind of part of the story as well. I used to write songs and I was like recording something that I'd written and they pulled out the chords of my keyboard. And I remember, and this was the first time, it was so out of character that I got away with it. I ripped the headphones off. I stood up and I said, fuck you, you little shits. And then sat back down. And it was so out of character that the music teacher was just like, what <laughs> you know and I didn't even get into trouble it was great and I think from that moment on I was just quite angry at the world <laughs> and needed an outlet for it um, yeah. various other things happen to you when you're a girl in puberty that make you angry at the world and that that probably helped and suppose... the outlet I found was songs actually first of all was songs writing lyrics and songs and I suppose then that that's natural progression because I suppose the lyrics of songs are poems yes set to music yes that was my take on it at the time I mean, I, I remember I did poetry as part of my English folio in higher English, but I got a B, you know, because I always thought of them as lyrics. I was more inspired by people like Suzanne Vega and Leonard Cohen than I was by poets. I wasn't very well read in poetry until a lot later. And I suppose that even, you know, that teenager, maybe there's something either cathartic or just it gives you that courage. If you if you stand up and you almost like confront them verbally and it's kind of like almost telling them, I'm not interested in you. I'm not afraid of you. You can't do anything to me. Yeah, I, I think there's still part of me. I think about this a lot. I think there's still part of me that is motivated by being so bullied <laughs> in my entire school life because I had such an odd time of it at high school. At my worst, I had 56% attendance because I hated the school atmosphere. But, you know, I got straight Bs because I used to skive off and study because I always liked learning. I always loved learning and reading and everything, but I just hated school which made becoming a high school teacher in my later life a quite strange choice, I guess. So what, what subject did you teach then at high school? Modern studies. And was that, was that a strange experience then to go, obviously you're back in the classroom, but you're on obviously the other side of the desk, but 
does that bring back memories? Or are you then more aware of, of what you're looking for in terms of the class dynamic to try and ensure that doesn't happen to your pupils? Yeah, I mean, it was, I absolutely loved being a teacher. I really loved it. It was such a hard decision choosing to leave, but I had to by that point. Um, unfortunately, I had to make a choice between pursuing the writing, artsy, performing and being a high school teacher. It was, it was such a difficult job to do. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really, really odd. I actually think it, it, on a personal level, I think it helps me forgive quite a lot of my teenage years, to be honest with you, because you, you realise how young 14 actually is, you know, when you become a high school teacher and you, you see all of those different weird dynamics going on. You overhear, I was a, a registration teacher as well, so I would kind of like overhear snippets of conversations and things that teenagers are having to deal with. And yeah. You sort of have a bit of a selective deafness when you're a form school teacher and you sort of pretend that you're not listening. But, you know, you hear things and you think, yeah, I mean, it's shit being a teenager. It's really hard. Like your hormones are just like insane. And, you know, you've got, you're learning all of this stuff and the pressure that you're put under as a young person in the school, the type of schools that I worked in. I always worked in the state sector, but it tended to be quite affluent areas. And just the pressure that some of those young folks were putting in themselves was out of this world. I'm always glad that I grew up in an era that was pre-social media. And even when my oh, kids God. were going through their teenage years, effectively, they, they, they were just leaving school. And, you know, when even that explosion of everybody having a mobile phone before social media, I'm so glad I didn't have to deal with that because that in itself is just a nightmare. Oh, completely. I remember, I think I was 13 when the internet became a thing, uh, like 95 kind of time. And then um, we got taught how to use it by like 20 of us standing around one computer in the library. And I think it was the modern studies teacher as well who, who was introducing us to it. And I had the internet at home. I was one of the first folks I knew who had it. I remember thinking it was a fad, you know, like I remember thinking it was a fad. And um, like subsequently, I didn't even own my own laptop till I was 25. I told you, me and technology, we do not get on very well <laughs> at all. But social media is just, it's a terrible invention and it's also great as well. So it's really difficult for even adults to, to navigate it. And we're expecting young people to know how to do that. You know, I, I struggle with social media myself. But yeah, I mean, young, young people in social media, none of us, we're going through a sort of a seismic shift in how we communicate and how we, how we process information. And I think all of the utopian wonderful things that could have come out of the internet has been accompanied by the worst of human nature and the worst of tribal instincts you know it's I mean I'm not saying anything new here we actually all know this <laughs> but um I cannot imagine how hellish it must be being a teenager and navigating social media well as I say I'm, I'm absolutely glad I'm, I'm well beyond uh, those kind of pressures and as you say it just as adults, it's different kinds of pressures, but it's still, for every good point of social media, there's a negative and it's, it's trying to weigh up the two of them and I'm, I'm never quite convinced that the good side comes out on top. Yeah, it's a funny one. I didn't have a public Twitter account until probably, I think it was 2015, and I didn't have a smartphone either because <laughs> I told you I'm a complete technological dinosaur. But I would say... I, th I think it's made me more unhappy or it might be you know the global pandemic I don't know but um I do I find myself you know perhaps engaging in that kind of the endless mindless doom scrolling I'm quite bad for that sometimes so I like I just 
don't have it on my laptop. If I want to doom scroll, I'll use my phone, but not on the laptop where I work. But actually, I mean, I've spoken to young writers, young musicians, young poets who've grown up with the internet. And most of them have said it has changed the topics that they would feel like safe engaging with. And I think that's a worrying thing that we're maybe not, we're not really quite ready to understand the, the impact of that as well. I mean, in terms of, I'm not sure if it's quite the link with technology, but certainly the way there's elements of social media that, that maybe lead into your, your next choice of book, mm. certainly in terms of how the world communicates, how people can kind of see and listen to everything you do. And so your book from formative years would be George Orwell's 1984. And that's a book which I just feel everybody in the world who hasn't read it should read it. And they need to read it now because it kind of tells you everything that's going on. Yeah, it's um, it's probably not the most original choice of formative book that I could have come up with, but um, that that novel has changed my life in so many ways. I first read it when I was probably fourteen, and I think like most fourteen-year-olds, I skipped the bit where he's reading um Goldstein's book, you know, and I just sort of focus on the love story and what happens like later, whatever. But then when I was at university, when I was 22 to 26, I actually focused in my dissertation on socialist thought and imaginative literature. And um, I had a focus on, on 1984 as a way of understanding power and social control. So what Orwell got right, what he didn't. I don't think it's his best novel. I think that would probably go to Animal Farm, but it's certainly an exceptionally important novel that that the writers who've grown up under communism have said get so much right just about the the psychological effects of being constantly under surveillance that's one of the the major things that that struck me about the novel from the first go that that just the constant surveillance and that's you know I read that in the in the 90s like way before social media but that feeling that you're constantly being watched and I think that I would say Twitter and Instagram and things of, and both visual and text-based social media, it does, well, you know, we're not going to get like locked in a, well, in Britain anyway, we're not going to get locked in a cell for liking the wrong tweet or whatever. We are kind of, we're both curating ourselves and surveilling everybody else. And I mean, the, the psychological effects of that are probably not known yet. I've been saying, I mean, obviously, I, I, th- I think I read, 1984 when I was at school but I always remember when the first or the, the war George W Bush's war on terror and as soon as mm. he said that phrase from that point on I've been saying to people you have to read 1984 that is just Orwellian speak and although at the time he was reflecting what he thought was happening in, in the kind of Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc loads of what he is saying in 1984 is reflective of the world that we live in and the, and the west and the so-called a liberal democracy. Yeah, well, I mean, he's on record as saying that the reason he set it in London is because he wanted to highlight that, you know, it's not something that's unique to, you know, Britain that means that it's never become a totalitarian state. You know, there's not something that's uniquely different about us as human beings than there is from Chinese people. It's that if you're not constantly vigilant about the creep of authoritarian ideas and totalitarian thinking, then it can happen anywhere. It's not an exact quote, but he said, to, you know, it was to, to highlight the fact that these things can happen anywhere. And that's why he set it in London. And yeah, I mean, the discussions about language. Oh, I mean, yes, war on terror. I, actually, I read I read a really, really good book uh, by a guy called Stephen Poole, which is called Unspeak. 
um, non-fiction and it's yeah it's basically an analysis of political language and the thought cancelling that can happen through your choice of words has always fascinated me you know pro-life for example gives the impression that the opposite side would be anti-life you know so it's it's very important to use the proper language for things and um yes that's that's something that orwell was obsessed with as well you know when i was reading the introduction and one of the things i'd mentioned was one of the, the projects that you're working on just now which is a a stage play, a reimagining, because obviously at the heart of 1984 as well, which I think sometimes forgot, there is a love story there. It's, yes. And it's such a, an honest and it's not flowery at all. It's very, very much in keeping with the novel, the reimagining of Julia. And what I liked about the fact that you're kind of almost bringing her centre stage, because everybody always remembers Winston Smith and Big Brother, etc. And it kind of reminded me, I'd heard an interview recently with Maggie O'Farrell and she was talking about Hamnet. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that had bugged her always any time she was reading about Shakespeare was the fact that his wife was barely a footnote in his life to the point where they didn't even get her name right. And she brought in that novel, although it's ostensibly about Shakespeare's son, it's actually about his wife. It brings her centre stage. She's the, she's the main character in it. And I like that idea of you taking this female character who a lot of people might be hard pushed to remember her name if they've read the book. And then yeah. you literally, if you're doing that play, bringing her centre stage. Yeah, well, Julia doesn't have a surname, <laughs> you know, in, in the novel. Yeah, I, I mean, I think she's the most fascinating character in the novel. Winston is, you know, I mean, he's full of exactly the kind of totalitarian thinking that he's trying to fight against. You know, he when he's interviewed by O'Brien, he says, he, you know, he's willing to throw acid in a child's face if it will somehow support the brotherhood. Whereas Julia, I mean, she was, she was focused on having fun. She looked around Airstrip 1 and thought about ways to survive within it. And the ways that she chose to survive within it are very, very human. She wanted love. She wanted sex. She wanted pleasure. Whereas Winston, you know, he's, he's full of these grander ideas. So I find, Julia, I find Julia and Winston fascinating. But I find Julia really interesting a character for today, to be honest with you, because She's very, very flawed, of course. I mean, she's misogynist. She hates other women, for example. That's something that she says very early on. She's young and she's grown up with this system. And so when there's a point in the novel where Winston says to her, where he points out that the the enemy has just changed from Eurasia to East Asia or vice versa. And she sort of vaguely says, oh, I thought we were always at war with Asia. So it's not that, so Winston's obsessed with what the truth is and we must find the truth. Julia doesn't actually give a shit what the truth is. And I think that makes her more, it makes her more like a lot of us today than than maybe we're particularly comfortable with. And whatever I write is not going to be a comfortable experience, I don't think, because I want to use Julia to explore some of the worst sides of what we're doing just now. But I do also want it to have a happy ending. So I'm giving myself quite a challenge. I was going to say that, that is a challenge in itself to have a happy ending. It is, yeah. But I also want to hint at what Julia might have faced in room 101 because we're never told and I think that that's a really interesting thing to explore as well um yeah it's, it's going to be a challenge but I love Julia she's she's so horrible but also just brilliant she's so full of she she gets so much pleasure out of the small things in life in a way that Winston just doesn't and how is that project progressing I'm plotting it and planning it and I think I've worked out that it's going to involve three actors I think <laughs> um, and I've, I, I write in a very bitty manner I must say I so I, I tend to come up with like 
notebooks and notebooks of like little bullet points and little quotes here and there and there and there. And then I'll sit down and I'll write the fucker in about four days. That's how I've written everything I've ever done. So it's still at the pulling together big massive notebook phase. So... <laughs> Awesome. Good, good luck with that. I think it's a, it sounds like a brilliant idea, actually. And as you say, just the fact that, you know, obviously in the book, the novel, they both betray each other because they've yes. been to Room 101. You know what Winston's Room 101 is. But, you know, just even as a, as a writer, the fact that you don't know what, what it was that turned Julia or broke Julia, that gives you that yeah. scope to imagine. Yeah, and I, I'm going to, I'm probably going to piss off Orwell scholars by questioning just how much either of them were broken as well, because it's one of the least convincing parts of 1984 is room 101 and the power of the boot in the face I find that quite an unconvincing conception of power what I do find convincing is the use of language to manipulate people's thinking and that's something that the likes of uh, Jung Chan in Wild Swans for example that she's talked about that she was literally incapable of of viewing the situation that, that she grew up in as bad or as mal as horrendous because she didn't have the language to express that you know and and that's very convincing to me the bit in the face forever and forever and ever not so sure that's temporary well we'll certainly look forward to that play when when it does come out well you're listening to the read all about it podcast with me paul cuddy and my guest in this podcast is jenny Lindsay and we move on, Jenny, to your third book choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is a book called The Infiltrators. The subtitle is The Lovers Who Led Germany's Resistance Against the Nazis. I read a review of this, I think in The Spectator. Don't kill me, everyone. But yes, I occasionally read the reviews in The Spectator. And I bought it on the, on the strength of it because it just sounded so completely up my street. Thinking back to what we've just talked about with Winston and Julia, you know, the, the sort of the lovers trying to be rebellious and whatever. It is an absolutely beautiful book. I'd never heard of these people. Um, Harold Schull's voice in it. I don't know if I'm saying that that right. And Libertas has high. But yeah, they were young lovers who basically worked from within to attempt to sort of bring down the Nazis. I, I don't want to give too much away, but well, of course they failed, you know, and there's death and horror and horrible betrayal and friends betraying them and then other friends not betraying them and and just there's everything in this this book it's, it's an astonishing story I don't I almost don't want to say too much about it because I really want everyone to go and read it <laughs> but it's beautiful and I think it's it's that thing that I'm slightly obsessed about myself and that we all ask ourselves what would we have done if we were in that situation and we all like to think that we'd have been the ones who you know, try to do something to stop it all. But to be honest with you, the vast majority of people who find themselves in these situations are bystanders. They're bystanders and observers who keep their heads down. That's what most people do. And these guys didn't. And it's so courageous what they did. Yeah, I should say that the book, uh, I was just checking there, the book's written by a guy called Norman Oller. I think it's O-H-L-E-R. I mean, it sounds, you know, again, it's like one of those stories that as soon as you, you read the week in a synopsis or just hearing you talking about it, it is, it's one of those books you think, I need to read that, it sounds an amazing story. And I think you're absolutely right, not only just in the context of Nazi Germany, but if you look around the world, even, you know, if you look at how people over in the United States have reacted over the last four years to some of the, you know, the shocking things that have gone on, even up to the last few weeks of, yeah. you know, Trump's reign, people, for whatever reason, whether they're complicit, whether they're scared, remain silent and compliant. 
and when you look from afar as we would do, you'd say, well, how on earth is that possible? But then if you're being honest, you're thinking, well, if something like that happened here, who's going to, how many people are going to put their head above the parapet? Yeah, and I, I mean, it's true. Most of us want a quiet life. <laughs> and and when, when things start to go wrong in whatever situation, a lot of people's first instinct is, I don't want to be involved, you know? And that was a fascinating part of it too, how quickly the shift went from Harrow thinking that he could, you know, have democratic discussions with people about what was happening to then, you know, within days of him thinking that was possible, him being tortured in a cell and then obviously putting on a face and going along with it while doing things behind the scenes. But, you know, I, I mean, that would have been shocking for him at the time. And I think sometimes when we read these historical accounts, we forget how quickly things can shift. And um, there's that wonderful picture of um, the woman in Tehran um, before the revolution, you know, where they're dressed in Western dress, they're holding hands in public. And, you know, within months, their entire life's changed. If a mass of people are complicit about something and complicity being they don't stand up against it and they go along with it, then tyranny follows <laughs> you know that can happen that can happen anywhere that can happen in a school environment or it can happen in a poetry scene it can happen in a prison it can happen in a country and we have to sort of be constantly aware that that's something that can happen it's, it's why I really hate the phrase the right side of history when it's used by people who are currently going through history don't be so arrogant <laughs> history will judge us and actually there's a beautiful I will share this bit without saying exactly what happened, but there's a poem that Harrow wrote when he was under a terrible situation that said, Hangman's rope and guillotine won't have the final say. The world will be our judges, not the judges of today. And I think that that's something that we should all be aware of. There might well be things that we are doing right now that are being complicit about climate change, being one of the most obvious ones, that history will look back on us and say, what the hell were you doing? You know, it kind of touches on the kind of the choice of kind of when we were talking about George Orwell, but then also talking about this. And I hope you don't mind me asking about, obviously, you know, it's been a difficult year for everybody in terms of the pandemic. It's been quite mm. a tough year for you personally in terms of, you know, particularly mm. in relation to some of the topics we're talking about of having that courage of your convictions to, to stand up and say something that you believe is right and challenge something that is wrong. And mm. the knock-on effect of that, you know, that kind of, sort of social media pile on the and the impact it's had on you professionally and personally? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been, I've felt, um, yeah, dear listener, um, you can now read my account of everything um, online. Um, it's an essay I just wrote called Anatomy of a Hounding, Fear and Factionalism in Scottish Poetry. And yeah, it was an incredibly odd situation. And I think it did actually tie into, I say was, I mean, it's still ongoing, but it was a very, very odd situation to go through because it was that thing about how lies can become truth so quickly, so easily, and how I suppose social media at first, but then actually a lot of what happened to me was very much offline. But that way that people are so insistent on putting people in different camps that you can't critique one aspect of something without being put, without having other views assigned to you that you've never said, but people are so determined that you must do. And when a topic when a topic like sex, gender, gender identity and feminism, when that becomes allowed to become so toxic, because it, it has been allowed to become so toxic, because a lot of perfectly ordinary discussion that people want to talk about on all sides, because this is not a both sides issue, believe me. I mean, it's a, it's a huge, huge thing. When that gets so 
when that gets so out of control that even mentioning even one little thing or critiquing one person who happens to have a, a particular characteristic becomes evidence of, you know, like hatred or big, I mean, it was astonishing how, some of the things that were said about me and to me. I mean, it, was, it was horrendous, for God's sake. And as I say, obviously, nobody's going to shove me in a jail cell or whatever, but social ostracization is a thing, you know. It was incredibly difficult to go through. And I'm, I'm determined to put it behind me, to be honest with you, which writing the essay has allowed me to do. But I, I'm also determined to find a way through, if that's at all possible. Because the amount of people who have written to me and have said to me, oh, you're so brave, you're so courageous. I'm not. I'm not. I've met a lot of these people and I know they're not bad people, but they've got caught up in something that is part of our modern life that I think we're all going to have to try and be vigilant against not being part of. Yeah, because yeah. I, I think anybody who's listening, your, your essay, Anatomy of a Hounding, and if you just search that, and it's on, I think, the Dark Horse website. Yes. I mean, it is an extraordinary piece of writing, and it kind of really gets into the, the, the whole details of everything that happened. One thing that struck me, and again, going back to what we were talking about earlier on, we were saying about, you know, we maybe grew up in the pre-social media age, mm. that, a lot of these, whether it's that you know particular topic or other topics where, uh, as you say, it can be quite a volatile and hostile environment online, that if people were mm. in a room, they can they disagree, but in a completely different way because it's like that human yeah. interaction. But when you have that, whether it's an echo chamber or the kind of people feel that safety in numbers online or the anonymity yeah. that some people enjoy in order to be quite aggressive, that's one of the real negatives I've seen of social media. Yeah, absolutely. And it, again, it is a funny one because um, a lot of the people, and, and I, I don't name names for a very good reason, which is that I don't want anything like what happened to me to happen to any of them, you know, should the discussion shift and people like me be viewed as the ones that you should listen to, for example, but I wouldn't want anyone to experience what I did. I don't want anyone out of work. I don't want anyone socially ostracized. I want to move on. And it's funny because some of the people who were involved, I've actually had in-person discussions with that have been perfectly civil. If I'm, if I'm guilty of one thing, which, you know, I certainly don't think that I dealt with absolutely everything that happened in 100% the most rational way possible, <laughs> because I am a human being with, you know, feelings and it was very difficult to go through. But if, I, if I've been truly guilty of one thing, I think it's that I was laboring under the impression that we still, that despite some of the conversations taking place online or via email or whatever, that we could still use pre-digital modes of democratic discourse. I think that's, that's definitely something that um, I am guilty of assuming. I mean, I try to do it myself. I try not to put words in other people's mouths or make assumptions about their views based on what other people think or whatever. There was a lot of guilt by association that went on in, in what happened to me, but also the people I was guilty of associating with, they were also smeared as things that they were not. So it was, it was I mean, it's been quite a thing and it's ongoing and I have an unstoppable gob, so I'm not going to be able to avoid talking about the things that are important to me. But as far as I'm concerned, I've written an entire book and an entire stage show about sex, gender and feminism. It's not about gender identity. It's about sex, gender and feminism. And it's a memoir. You know, if people want to know what I think about things, come and see the show, come and read the book. That was one of the worst bits was people who'd never engaged with my work, making assumptions about what it was and trying to get it shut down. I mean, that's that's not what writers should do to other writers. It's like the opposite thing. 
that writers should do. It never ends well when writers do that to other writers. You know, we don't want that kind of a culture. And quite frankly, I've said all I have to say in my essay as well. So I hope I hope that that's enough for for us just all to maybe just calm down a bit and move on. That would be great. <laughs> Absolutely, well well said. Well, in terms of moving on, in terms of the podcast, I'll take you from. Uh, a book that you would recommend to anyone, to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And you gave me two books for different reasons, you said, which I'm interested to find out what they are. So the first one was the Twilight series, uh, Stephanie Meyer ones. And the other book was American Cycle by Brett Easton Ellis. So in terms of the Twilight series, why could you not be paid to read that again? Oh, they're just so bad. Like, so I, I read them because when I was a probation teacher, I did a car share with uh, another teacher who loved them just as a kind of like mode of escapism from, you know, you know, neither of us ever thought that they were wonderful literary novels or whatever, but she loved them much in the same way that, you know, like there's certain things I read or watch for escapism, you know, they were escapism for her. And I thought, okay, well, I'll give them a go. I mean, I love Harry Potter. I love the Harry Potter series. You know, these are for young adults. I'll I'll give them a go. Oh my God. It's just... (laughs) tawdry shit but one good thing about the twilight series is that at the end of the the end of the school day when i got in the car with her we would occasionally entertain each other by describing our day to each other in the style of stephanie myers in the twilight series and that was actually really funny and really good because they are they are kind of publishing phenomenon as well yeah i know i don't get that one i must say i don't get it i get the hunger games i get harry potter i don't get the twilight thing I don't get Fifty Shades of Grey either. I've never read that, but the little snippets I've read, I'm just like, oh my God, what? Because it's not a book series. I mean, like like my kids, my daughter in particular, read like the Harry Potter books, but I don't think I don't think the Twilight series books ever appeared at any stage in, in our house, so I'm, I'm not familiar mm. with them at all. Oh, they're just, I mean, I can't, I, I must say, they're not very memorable to me, and I can't, but it was just... Oh, I don't know. Like, have respect for the vampire thing. You know, I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but these vampires, no way. No, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> the other one I mentioned that you'd chosen in that category was Brett Easton Ellis's American yeah. Psycho. And, and why that one? So I've only read it once, right? And I must say, I, I have not watched the film because I'm not sure I could. It's a novel that truly frightens me, actually. And I think that's why I couldn't read it again. I remember reading parts of it like on a lunch break once I think it was 20 19 or 20 when I read it and feeling actually physically just weird and odd and so I mean maybe I should reread it to find out why it had that effect on me but it's just one that uh, yeah I had a visceral fear reading that book and I didn't like it it made me feel so strange because it's, it's a book I absolutely love and I actually one of the podcast guests just before the, the turn of the year that was the book they'd chosen in their, their kind of formative years. Mm-hmm. And it was it was quite funny because they'd went from this kind of quite gentle childhood book, I can't remember what it was, and then just jumped straight into American Psycho. My argument has always been, I mean, some of the, the, the kind of depictions of violence and stuff are truly shocking. In terms of reading the book, I'm not convinced that any of that actually happens other than in the, the character's mind. Uh-huh. It, it, does, it doesn't lessen the impact it has when you're actually reading it. Going, yeah, oh, my God. No- yeah, now people have said that to me. So, I mean, I, I maybe should reread it because so many people have said that to me. They're like, oh, well, there's this and there's that. It's like, I know, but I just I just remember reading. I can't even remember exactly what the scene was. And um, I'm 
really squeamish as well. So I wonder if that's it as well. And I would, and I don't think it's a bad novel. I mean, that's that's the thing. I, I think it's probably an incredible novel, and that's why it had that effect on me. I just, I maybe, I maybe read it followed by watching lots of Disney films or something. See, do you know that way I can understand? Because I, I used to always say to people, if you picked up American Psycho, it's very hard just flicking through it to find those passages that people would talk about, the, the kind of really extreme shock and violence. And I think that's part of the skill of the book is it's, you know, one minute you're talking about the main characters, you know, swapping business cards or just describing the banality of that Wall Street world. And then you mm. turn the page and the next minute it just smashes you right in the face and you're like, oh my God. And because it is so absolutely extreme, I think that is shocking and that, that's why I can understand why people don't want to to revisit that mm-hmm. because it is quite it's not for the, the faint-hearted yeah I mean I've got no idea if the film is true to the novel but that's why I can't watch the film either because <laughs> I just think oh no I mean I, rem- I remember sitting in a cafe in is it Royal Exchange Square my mind's gone blank in Glasgow yeah 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 it was a wee cafe I was sitting in there uh, on my lunch break and I remember like literally feeling quite dizzy walking back to work after what I'd read <laughs> oh dear I mean the film is I think it'd be impossible for it to be as graphic as the the book otherwise I don't think the film would have got any sort of classification Aye. I mean I think the books you know a million times better that's generally the case anyway but for different yeah. reasons but I, if you're squeamish I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> be making a beeline to watch either yeah, but it's funny so- in that category sometimes you know people approach it differently some people it is a book that they hate they just think it's rubbish and other people they've read it once they'll never read it again but they've actually enjoyed it and Mm. two or three people have chosen a book where it's kind of unnerved them so it's funny like you suppose that every book you have a different and no two people have the same reaction either to it so this has made me think oh maybe i should give it another go so if i am violently sick next week this podcast (laughs) is the reason totally the reason for it (laughs) i mean in terms of you when you're actually do you kind of know what you're going to be reading next, or is it just is it yeah. like a recommendation? I've got. I'm looking at. Just a, I've got a big pile, so I generally have a fiction, a non-fiction, and a book of poetry on the go at any one time. And yeah, I've got a wee pile of fiction and non-fiction that I want to work my way through. A lot of the time, the non-fiction is research for whatever I'm wanting to write about. And so I, I really like escapist fiction. I love just sitting down and reading crime novels and stuff like that, you know, and not always incredibly high literary fiction as well, because I need a bit of a release when I've been reading quite dry stuff about, you know, human psychology or social class or feminism or whatever it is. Because the other thing as well is it's sometimes different books, it depends what mood you're in as well, that sometimes you just want, as you say, something that's, you know, action-packed or, you know, something that's, it's got a bit mm-hmm. of kind of tempo to it. Yeah. Um, in terms of the the last choice in the podcast, and it's either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading, then you've you've given me two choices again. The first of those is The Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes. Yes, and actually, I suppose in that in that kind of way, one of the reasons that um, I wanted to get this this was a part of my Christmas from my mum was I was on the Damien Barr show with Kirsten Innes. Dustin Lance Black and Jojo Moyes. And I admit I'd never read any of Jojo Moyes's uh, novels before, but the interview that she did with Damien Barr made me just really want to read all of her books because she talked in her interview a bit about how, you know, she's often pegged as chiclet or whatever, but actually she does explore some really quite complex social or, or political issues within her work. And I love that, obviously. I, I, you know, I wrote my entire dissertation about political literature. 
And I love a, a novel that can do that, can simultaneously tell you a beautiful story, but also shine a light on an important issue. So I'm, I admit I'm only, I'm not even halfway through it yet. So I don't want to say too much about it because I might get it totally wrong, but it's proving all of those things so far. It's a great story, really interesting characters. You know, it's set in the past, which, you know, I quite enjoy at the moment because the present is awful. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's exploring gender and marriage and literacy, race. There's all of these different elements are coming through in it. And um, I'm really enjoying it so far. But, yeah, I've not quite got very far in so far. Because it's funny, you were saying earlier on about you hate that phrase, the right side of history. Yeah. You see the phrase, chiclet. I absolutely oh. hate it because... Yeah, it's awful. I just think it's instantly dismissive of, yeah. as you say, books that... That, so automatically you're saying to one half of the population, right, this isn't for you, which is just exactly. in terms of books. And I think a lot of men then are listening out on some great books. And it's also doing a disservice to all these women that are writing great novels by just saying, nah, it's just chiclet as if it's just like you can just you just knock it out and, you know, people are just going to read. I think I think that's so sneering and, and kind of that superior. I absolutely hate that phrase. No, completely. Absolutely. And I think she kind of, yeah, she talked a little bit about that kind of thing in the in the interview with Damon Barr as well. And she was just a lovely woman. So I wanted to buy her work too. So, I mean, it's something that as I mean, it affects all female writers and performers in, in different ways. Spoken word is no different. You know, I hate the fact that I feel unbelievably grateful that this script appealed to men as well as women. I shouldn't feel that overwhelming sense of gratitude, but, but it did. I mean, even though it's a show that was unashamedly about feminism, loads of men came to see it and, and loved it. And you do feel gratitude for it because you get, you get pegged as a female writer into certain boxes, whether it's, you know, the chiclet one or the, oh, she's not really political. I mean, Holly McNish, for example, to me, she's a highly political poet. But a lot of the time she gets pegged as, oh, she writes poems about being a mum. Is there anything more political than, you know, motherhood? So, yeah, it's it's a funny one being a being a female writer and performer. Because I was talking to somebody recently and they'd picked a book by Mallory Blackman as one of their book choices. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing some research on her, she had led a campaign four or five years ago trying to stop children's books, for example, being assigned gender so these kids books are for boys these books are for girls and that's probably the most crucial stage because when kids are reading you need to tell them that you read a book because you want to read a book it's this this book isn't for the girls in the class or your sisters this is for you and and vice versa and that's yeah that's that's the starting point oh completely I mean one of one of the the main sort of messages in in this script I mean there's quite a few but one of them is that a lot of this stuff has got worse you know, I could never, I never could have imagined how much worse the sort of gendering of things that are not gendered, like toys and clothes and things like that, would happen. It's quite astonishing, actually. And yes, in literature as well, you know, this idea of books for girls and books for boys. I mean, me and my older brother and younger sister were all very different, but we were all reading the same books, you know. What would famous, would famous five now be sort of designated boys books or something? I don't know, but odd to me yeah well I like I like the sound of of the giver of stars just from having the wee and I did see that it was the Damien Barr's big Scottish book club that you performed mm-hmm. on and interestingly when you when we were chatting before uh, we started recording and uh-huh. you you've watched that episode but you haven't watched yourself on it I know and I need to get over it because I've watched 
I've watched myself in all the film poems that I did and I can watch that fine for some reason even though I've like got it all hanging out in my dressing gown and whatever <laughs> in, in the imagined we but um I don't know I had very very bad hair I will say like I haven't bothered like cutting my hair or like dyeing it since March last year because what the fuck's the point um, and I could have done something because I was going to be in the telly but I was just in a shit mood so I didn't I just took myself along and it's like yeah whatever and um I don't know I mean when I performed it for them and they recorded it it felt really good so I thought well I don't I don't want to watch that back because I feel happy enough about what I've done so. yeah no, listen it listen it was good and I thought I thought that whole series was great anyway I liked it was it. yeah it's such a variety of guests and kind of put poetry centre stage as well in terms of having people performing every week which I think is good to yeah. try and bring that to the kind of masses as well yeah um, I ended up buying other books off, off the back of it I bought um is it Graham Armstrong the young young team, young that's, team in yeah. my, that's in my to read pile at the moment and I haven't read Scabby Queen yet either but I really must and the reason I haven't read it yet is I thought somebody might buy me it for Christmas but they haven't so uh, I'll need to get it myself <laughs> so well, well listen you'll enjoy that you, you'll enjoy the experience of reading Scabby Queen but it is disappointing that nobody gave you it as a present I thought it was a really obvious one to buy me, but obviously not. It depends. I suppose it depends how how many subtle hints did you drop to people before Christmas? Well, quite a lot. I mean, like as I, I said to my mum and my brother, oh, I'd be really happy getting any of the novels of the people I was on the telly with. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it fell on fell in deaf ears, but that's a, that is a brilliant novel. You will definitely. Yeah, everyone's that. raving about it. So yeah. The other book that you'd mentioned just in this category was. A book called An Extraordinary Scandal, The Westminster Expenses Crisis and Why It Still Matters by Emma Crew and Andrew Walker. Yeah, so this is one of the, I mean, it's not dry, it is very interesting, but it's one of the, I'm reading it because it's research kind of books. And um, so this is kind of like an insider. Well, Andrew Walker was an insider in Westminster when the expenses crisis was happening. Emma Crew's a, she a writer or a journalist? I'm not too sure. Anyway, again, I'm not particularly far through it, but the reason I'm I'm reading it and the reason I'm sort of refreshing my memory about the expenses scandal is I'm attempting to write my first novel, like everybody, you know. <laughs> I'm attempting to write my first novel and it's set to the backdrop of the MP's expenses scandal. So I'm kind of just reading around that to remind myself about the conversations that were going on at the time, because it was 10 years ago. I mean, it's, it's funny when I when I kind of just Googled what that book was about. Obviously, the, t- the title's kind of self-explanatory. And it reminded me, you know, there was a big kind of furore recently on social media about the the £30 food bag that was supposed to be sent to some of the most vulnerable children in England. And actually, when they looked at it, it was, I think it was barely worth a fiver. So £25 was going to the company. The first yeah. point, obviously, it jars with you the fact that why is MD making money off feeding children? But then when the government are then saying, oh, this is unacceptable, on the back of people like Marcus Rashford highlighting the scandal of this. But then you would see on, on social media people posting some of the expenses claims of some of the politicians and the government over the last year that amount to thousands of pounds for things like a new pair of headphones. And, and you think they're probably still doing it in full view. It's just that it's no longer it's not been exposed again, but they've not really learned the lessons from, from this scandal. It was one of the most shocking scandals of like the last 10 years. And and the the reason that I felt really affected by it, apart from anything else, I'd studied politics. I'd graduated in 2008. And I am a Democrat as well. Like I really believe in democracy. I, I think it's the best system. And so it just kind of, 
when you are a Democrat, when you, when you when you believe in democracy as much as I do, all of these things are just fuel for the people who are not into democracy, don't think it will ever work or whatever. So I ended up having all these, you know, discussions about how it doesn't mean that we can't keep trying, though, you know, whereas a lot of other people were like, no, this just shows that the system will always be corrupt and da 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 da. And I find that incredibly frustrating as somebody who does believe that representative democracy can work as a system. We just need better representatives. That would be great. But also at the time I was I was working as a homelessness warden for Edinburgh City Council as well. And so reading about the expensive scandal at the same time as working in homelessness, I mean, it was just it was the contrast between those different worlds. And I mean, the impact of all of that on things like, you know, the Scottish independence debate as well. I mean, all of these things came, it was a very interesting, interesting time. The London riots in 2011, that was, wasn't it? 2011. So all of these kind of different things that highlighted just the stark divide between our representatives and ourselves. So I'm just reminding myself about all of that, about duck houses and eyeliner pencils and claiming for flipping homes and all of this bullshit. So yes. <laughs> you know, every year on, on Twitter, they do a... People can tweet pitch their, their ideas and publishers and agents, etc. will look at the, the tweets and if they're interested. Mm-hmm. And I saw you'd taken part in that. Is that the, the kind of novel that you were kind of yeah, that's, just, that's, just putting out there? Yeah, yeah. To be honest with you, I've never... I've, actually, that's a lie. I have written a novel, but nobody's ever read it. Um, I wrote it when I was 17, mm-hmm. but I suppose it became this script later on, shall we say. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I did start sketching it out while it was happening you know but I think I think it's like I said near the beginning actually of the of the podcast you know when you're right in the middle of something as it's happening you can't always see the woods for the trees so actually revisiting this 10 years later I think is possibly a better idea I mean all of the novels I try to write become poems so we'll see what happens <laughs> but because <laughs> we'll I'm always a bit wary about that the, put the thing out in the tweet I'm just always paranoid that somebody goes, that's a great idea, and then steals it. And nix it, yeah. I mean, I've never I've never taken part in Expo North before. I've always, like, enjoyed reading through them and everything, but I thought, oh, bollocks to it. I'll just I'll chuck out the idea and see if people think it's a good one. And a couple of folk have said, oh, that's that sounds really interesting. I'd read that. So I thought, oh, well, that's I'll, the wee boost you want to keep writing it and keep exploring it and keep reading quite dry reports about MPs expenses so. <laughs> well listen good luck with good luck with that as well sadly we've come to the the end of the podcast Jenny um it's been really good uh, having a chat with you about your favorite and and not so favorite books and if MD wants to just check out all the different book choices uh, that Jenny gave today in the podcast if you go to my website www.paulcuddehy.com each guest will just have an individual page and I just list all the books and the various categories but as I say thanks very much for for joining me on the podcast and I'm looking forward in particular uh, hopefully to seeing this play with uh, Julia from 1984 taking centre stage yeah well hopefully you know if theatres actually survive um, maybe one day it will be able to be staged writing the fucker comes first of course <laughs> and, and, and with those wise words we'll call it a day thanks very much Paul <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. 
But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.